Welcome to the FDIC podcast, Banking on Innovation. My name is Sultan Megji. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer here at the FDIC. And this is the most recent in a series of podcasts we're doing where we're talking about advances and innovations in technology as it relates to the banking sector and financial services more broadly. One of the things we've embarked on over the last few months since I joined is to bring in some of the best minds we can find to help us make sure that we're thinking about the evolution of the FDIC into the future the best way possible. We would be remiss if we didn't include some of the brightest minds in academia, and I am incredibly lucky today to be interviewing Dr. Jimmy Lenz from Duke University, a good friend. Thank you for joining us today, Jimmy. Oh, thank you for having me. This is just fantastic. Can't think of a better way to spend an afternoon. I've known Jimmy for a long time, but it occurs to me many listeners don't know you very well. So maybe I could ask you to just introduce yourself for the audience. Sure, more than happy to. Uh, I come from a long career in finance, uh, several decades, which, uh, boy, that, that uh, dates me really quickly, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> I came to, uh, to academia quite late in life after spending time at uh, mainly large financial organizations in, uh, in a number of different roles, though, everything from uh, an algorithmic trader to a uh, co-president and chief operating officer to the chief risk officer of the second largest brokerage firm in America. And so putting all those things together, and, and maybe a little aside, I came into academia a few years ago to, uh, to uh, start a, a different kind of trajectory for myself. Well, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, you and I met right basically as you were finishing that up, right? You know, which is, you know, after a few decades in very large corporate environments, uh, you were, you know, you were at Washington University where, where I'm, I'm now a professor, you know, many years later, but you went from that and, and now you've landed here at Duke. So I think the biggest question for me is what made you pick Duke? Yeah, that was it's such a great question, Sultan. And I don't think people... Uh, think about things maybe this way, but it was uh, it was a little bit kismet, and uh, I think a little bit about Duke Duke and the way Duke thinks about things. I had, uh, as I, you mentioned, I've been teaching uh, a little bit at a couple of different universities, in uh, and the subject was always around financial innovation. Uh, I taught a lot of machine learning, I taught some blockchain things like that, and always with a finance perspective on them. When I had the chance to, um, through a mutual friend, to talk to the folks at Duke. It was very interesting because it was in the engineering school. It wasn't in the business school. And that, that, that gave me a little bit of pause right there. And so we started talking about uh, an idea that they had to start a program in financial technology. And that was, to me, a really interesting place to, to do that at. Because one of the things that I noticed in working at a business school was students were prepared in a very different way than engineers. Engineers come at things from a little bit more quantitative perspective, not always, but most of the time. Um, but they also come from a very applied education. And that's not really taught in the business school. Business school tends to be a little more theoretical. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I came from a business school. Uh, but the, the engineering school was, was more applied and they were actually building things. And when they explained their idea around uh, building a financial technology program, graduate program, I, I just jumped at it. Uh, and so the, uh, what, what ended up happening was I became the director 
of the uh, Master of Engineering in Financial Technology uh, in the Engineering School. And then later, uh, I also took on the role of Director of Master of Engineering in Cybersecurity, which I think are kind of inextricably linked anyway, and so it was a good fit. Well, inextricably linked is, uh, is absolutely true. You know, we have these innovation themes here at FDIC, and the second one is all around resilience. Because we see, you know, not slightly more broadly than, than just cybersecurity, but it is very much about the fact that you can't have a, an effective large-scale financial technology platform without having robust cybersecurity engineered in from the beginning. So, you know, I, I, I see those as, as, you know, the natural fits of, uh, you know, peanut butter and chocolate or, or whatever, you know, combination you go for there, right? But that combination of the business experience plus the engineering experience, you know, is, I think, a credit to Duke for putting it inside of the engineering school. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I spend a lot of time dealing with is how we make um, the United States globally competitive in the 21st century? You know, how do we really build on the successes of the 20th century, build on the successes that are already there, and and really ensure that a free market capitalist, democratically oriented global economy is, is the one that is dominant? And, you know, we're in a, a massive global competition to train the next generation of talent to make sure they have not just the theoretical experience, but the applied experience and that they can then immediately go into, into value. So given that, it made perfect sense to talk to Duke because it's one of the marquee organizations. They have an amazing program that, that I, I happen to know a little bit about because of you, but it does position this as a very different kind of academic and governmental partnership than you would see in other circles. I could spend a long time talking about why we chose Duke as our as our as our partner on this initiative. I'd be very curious about what got you excited about this when when we started talking about it. There were several things that that um, kind of charged me about doing this. We we already work with some financial institutions and things like that, but the FDIC is a very different animal. Uh, so I and I I really do think about the FDIC as the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You all, I would imagine, are the largest insurer in the world. Uh, and, you know, being able to have students exposed to that, um, being able to have them exposed to how you manage that is a, is a fascinating topic because it is very quantitative at the end. And most of our students are very quantitative. And one of the things that we've tried to do in the program is introduce both the finance and the technology in almost every course they take. So, for instance, they start off taking a couple of programming courses. But the things they're programming are things like Markowitz Efficient Frontier, which is very core to finance. And yeah. so I saw this partnership very much furthering that education, that idea that the we were working we could work with the FDIC who has a purview over all of the banks but is also an insurance company and and you have to me one of the the mandates that the FDIC has is you know could be you know a, among the most important for any economy uh, that that idea of a sustainable presence throughout the economy and and we've seen that, you know, kind of materialize over and over again. We usually think of, you know, the things that are core to economy are like an operating 
stock market and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. But but you all are you know the backstop, and we've you know we've seen what happens when an FDIC doesn't exist. Um, it, it didn't work out well, and so I think that the that on top of the successes that the FDIC has, uh, I mean throughout their history, they've managed changes of all kinds. Uh, you know they've they've managed changes that were very systemic and idiosyncratic risks. And they've come out the other side just that much stronger. So that that learning that our students have, and our students are from around the world, they can take that home with them. Uh, whether they decide to stay here in the United States, whether they decide to to go back to uh, go back home to a different country, they can take that experience home with them, and hopefully that proliferates kind of what you were talking about before. Well, it's in an era where systems are you know, often under pressure and the the need for the for systems are being questioned. Showing effective systems like what we have here in the United States in terms of our federated regulatory model, I think is really important. Um, I had the opportunity to give a lecture at, at, at a think tank earlier and earlier today, actually, and I drew the comparison between highly centralized, fairly rigid economic systems and federated systems, right? And it becomes a really interesting question that gets into some of the research that we're going to be exploring together between between FDIC and Duke. And one of the areas that you and I were talking about that, that I'd love for, for us to spend some time on is talking about zero-knowledge proofs. Because, you know, when you're talking about thousands of institutions, hundreds, basically, regulatory and support bodies, and, you know, petabytes of data, the old way of just throwing data around and having to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year on, on data management is just a, just a waste of resources. And it presents all sorts of opportunities, whether from a cybersecurity perspective for bad behavior or just from a regulatory perspective, right? We want to protect the personal information of consumers, right? And so for me, near, zero knowledge proofs becomes a really interesting opportunity. Are there ways for us to analyze hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of data sources around a system in a way that keeps them secured? I, I think it's a great idea. You and I have talked about that a little bit. And zero knowledge proofs are certainly a uh, something that's been around for a long time, but with the computational power that we have now, we can actually affect it in in a different way than than just the, that theoretical realm. Um, for those listeners who don't know what a zero knowledge proof is, it's probably worth uh, mentioning a little bit. So there's this great analogy. I was talking with a, a guy not too long ago, and I can't remember who it is because I would give him credit um, for this. But the the analogy that he gave when he was told to ex or when he's asked to explain what a zero knowledge proof is. Um, is uh, you, you know those where, where's where, where's Waldo books? You know for kids they have like they're like sure. you know they're huge these books. So where's Waldo? And you open it up and it's two pages and you have to find Waldo in a beach scene or you know a dog park or something. And he said a zero knowledge proof is cutting out Waldo and showing somebody Waldo. You don't have to show them the rest of the picture. All you have to show them is Waldo. That so, is absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic and far better than any explanation I've had to give to any of the people who've asked me about it in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to steal that one. So we need to figure out who that is and put it in the I show notes or something. Remember. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, we have, you think about all the different data from banks that, that, that we're potentially looking at. It's everything from balance sheet data to board minutes to, you know, loan files. And, and, you know, I, I hate the idea of moving data around. I hate the energy it costs. I hate the, you know, the time it takes to manage the, all the, kind of all the energy around it, the security around it, all this. And the idea that instead of going to a bank and saying, give it, give us all your data. And then we go off and spend days, weeks, months, whatever it is, trying to analyze something that instead we simply point a piece of technology at, at the bank and that comes back and hands us the Waldo that lets us know, you know, is, is the bank, you know, being run in a safe and sound manner? Is it trending the right way, et cetera, et cetera, right? I think there um, are so so many interesting things that that we have um, at, at hand now. And, and being, you know, both of us have been in the industry for a while, me a little bit longer, and seeing the development of computational power being applied in the way that it is now. I mean, as I said, I, you know, I kind of came up on the algorithmic trading side. And when I very first started, um, there was no algorithmic trading, right? Uh, there was, there was, you know, it, it was really, really nascent. And um, I remember the first big kind of program that I saw that actually operated uh, within, and that was Bara. That was when Bara Rosenberg very first invented Bara and allowed you, allowed you to tilt an index. And for those of you who are familiar with that kind of thing, you would say, well, I can do that on my iPhone now. And it's like, yes, you could. But, uh, but we were harnessing the full power of Lotus 1, 2, 3 um, to, to be able to do that. And so it, it, it's changed so much. And so now we can talk about utilizing zero-knowledge proof for, for this, but also, I think, for analyzing things in a very dynamic manner. Um, that's, to me, that's the beauty of what we can do now is the we have the opportunity to basically head things off before they happen we can we know with a certain degree of probability the outcome of this collection of variables at a certain point in time and so i think having that and being able to muster that um you know you all have you know just this this real opportunity out there Okay, so we've just talked about zero knowledge proofs, and and by extension, we've talked about artificial intelligence. What are some other things on your research plate that are that are exciting, that are big, that are things that uh, that you would want our listeners to be thinking about or hearing about? So we're we're definitely the AI and machine learning. We're doing a lot in that space. As I said, we the blockchain space is fascinating. I have more students wanting to take that class than than I have space to teach it. Um, we will we will definitely be doing more in um, in that area, uh, applying algorithms to trading uh, and and dip trading different kinds of assets and things like that is very popular. In fact, we just added a second class. Um, quantitative risk management is probably the second. Pro when we add, when students come in the door, we ask you know what what do you, what do you intend to do or what would you like to do when you graduate. That's probably the second or third. Uh, on, the, on the list, quantitative risk management. And they're looking at insure tech companies, they're looking at banks, they're looking at you know, non-banks offering financial services, looking at all kinds of different applications of that. Uh, and so we, we're, we're offering uh, quantitative risk management. Um, again, being in the engineering school is fun because everything's applied. We get to build stuff in every right. class. Uh, 
it's just fun. It used to be you would have one set of data, one analysis, and one risk score, right? It was a one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one. very straightforward, very linear, right? Nowadays, I think we're getting to a point where it's going to be many sources of data, many analyses, and many risk scores that then get aggregated through probably some sort of artificial intelligence to create an aggregate score that is changing every 30 seconds, right? That seems to be the direction we're going. On, on your side, on the academic side, do you see the same kind of push? You see different algorithms, different data providing, in some cases, probably contradictory risk scoring, but that still fundamentally need to be taken all into account together. Absolutely. Uh, that is, I think that is what many, uh, and, and, and in different applications, so it's not just in finance, in other applications, this ability to take in dynamic uh, assessments is is critical uh, to to a lot of different things that are that are going on in the environment, and and environment is a big factor. Uh, the environmental risks that we see, uh, I mean, people are finally, I think, starting to to come around to that. That is a data point that is that that should certainly be taken into account. But the ability to to take all these things in and assess them, I mean, I still see banks. Um, and, and other kinds of organizations that are basically benchmarking their risks. At the end of the year, everybody gets together and they say, okay, what are our risk tolerances going to be? And everybody who's done this for the FDIC knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but what, what, are, what are our tolerances going to be for these different things? And we set them, you know, they set them in, I guess, November, December, and roll them out in January. And, uh, and that's the risk tolerance for the year. Are your risks in January really the same as they were as they are in December of the same year? Probably uh, not. I, I would say that 2020 possibly would give you a, a different perspective on that, yeah. right? It, <laughs> um, it certainly should give everyone pause. Uh, yeah. If, if yeah. you think that that's working, um, it, it's not. And so, yeah. to your point, I think that not only do are your do your are your risk change do your risk change, but your tolerances need to need to reflect that. Their tolerances should reflect the the environment in which things are occurring, not the environment from eight months ago. Yeah. Okay. So as we come to the end of this podcast, and and I, I'm sure we we've made a couple of people's ears bleed, you know, with some of the more technical <laughs> sides of our conversation. What are a couple of things that, that you would highlight for our listeners that they should be thinking about or, 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 or paying attention to in the coming weeks and months as they continue to study this, this market? Yeah, I think there are a number of things that are very apt. Um, obviously, the proliferation of non-banking entities that offer financial services, that is not going to slow down. Absolutely not going to slow down. Um, the uh, some of the things that we're seeing in the blockchain and the cryptocurrency space not going to slow down. Those are those are here to stay. Um, I think some of the um, cutting edge technologies around machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, but I would say not just the use of those, but there is a a real need to understand the way they work. Um, one of the things that I try to do is you know at the beginning of the so I teach a class on machine learning the first two-thirds of the class we spend just on how does this operate 
if somebody says, if somebody's in a, in a boardroom or in any room and says, well, it's a black box, immediately that's, that's a sign that they have no idea how it works. Um, question, question black boxes, <laughs> question them a lot. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about that one in particular, because, you know, I, I think you've probably heard me say this a few times, you know, if you're on the, if you're a C, a C-suite person or a board member or, or an examiner and, and you should ask the question, it should be, is, is your algorithm deterministic or is it probabilistic, right? Is it explainable, right? Can it tell you why it made the decision? And does it fundamentally alter, in a positive way, the risk to your organization? Does it fundamentally decrease the risk? And if you, and if, if the person you're talking to can't answer those three questions, then I, I would say maybe you know, fire them and find someone else to talk to. <laughs> I would agree with you. I, I really would because I think those are we're, we're depending more and more on those, and people, yeah. you know, and, it, and it's very easy to say, well, I just don't understand that. Well, do do understand yeah. it. It's, it's really important. Uh, I, I think that we're going to, you know, in my, in my mind, I think that we're seeing uh, some of the things that we're seeing people should, should look at very closely. So this rise of um, non-financial, non-banks non offering financial services, um, why is that occurring? Um, the rise of cryptocurrency and decentralized finance, why is that occurring? I think the why um, people should be very concerned with and be, be thinking about quite a bit. Um, payments, as you said, are now proliferating different ways to pay for things, and and that's being more, you know, basically more democratized. Um, the ability to pay for things in different ways, to open accounts in different ways. I think that, you know, going forward, in the back of my mind, a lot of what I do is around trying to provide, you know, more access, um, more equality. I, I I guess more more easy, uh, more equal equal access. That's probably the best way to put it equal access to all kinds of, you know, financial products and services. I think that's, that's huge. Um, and if you just want to look at it from a bottom line standpoint, it just makes sense if, yeah. if that's the way you want to look at it. You know, it's interesting. We use some slightly different language, but I think, you know, as an organization, we have a very similar mind. You know, our, our the first theme of innovation here at FDIC is around inclusivity. And, and I, and I par paraphrase and I say something to the effect of, you know, how do we ensure that we are building the most inclusive, most diverse, most equitable banking system, right? As a, a, for the future, because the, the the American population are not homogeneous. They they don't all look the same. They don't all act the same. They you know, and, and we need to have a system that that's respectable of that. And one of the things I think the banking sector hasn't done the best job of over the last few decades is meeting the customers where they are. And and that's kind of to your point about about you know, why so much of the fintech ecosystem has emerged is, you know, the, they, they have met the customers where they are. And, and so as these non-bank or, you know, uh, layered banking infrastructures come up with these banking as a service players, we're going to continue to see more and more of this and more federation of, of, of activity. And, and it's just going to become more and more complicated. And so, you know, I think that the biggest thing for me, and, and you, you have a unique perspective on this. So this is the last question. If I was a bank C-suite person or on the board of a bank or I was a, a, a regulator or someone in market who is listening to the two of us and just is like, I don't understand half the words these guys are saying, you know, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, di distributed what, um, you know, what would you suggest for them to do to, to start to, to learn so that they could start to, to understand 
you know, how this universe is evolving around them. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I think the, uh, there, are, there are great podcasts to listen to. Mm -hmm. I think there are universities that, you, that have short courses constantly mm -hmm. on, on all these kinds of topics. Uh, I think that there are a number of different avenues of um, self-education. Uh, platforms like Coursera are out there and, and similar that allow you to learn from people that are teaching this, that are innovating these things, mm -hmm. that, that, that want to give this knowledge away. Uh, I mean, my, my teaching philosophy, you know, when you, when you, I mean, you've, you've already gone through this because when you're hired as a professor, one of the first things yeah. they ask is, what's your teaching philosophy? Yeah. And, and mine, you know, usually it's like a dissertation. Mine <laughs> is, I want to give everything I know away as many times as possible. Uh, and I think most, I think most professors are like that. Um, if if you're a banker at a you know small, medium, large size bank, and you're listening to to Sultan and I, and we're talking about these different things, and you're like, what the heck are these guys talking about? I don't know what you know this is. You know what? I'll guarantee you, if you pick up a phone, call the business school at your local university, and say, hey, do you have anybody who teaches this? They would love spending an hour with you. Mm, that's a great one. I think it's that's a that's a great one. Um, and of course, you're not hard to find on on uh, online or social media. So uh, I'm sure I'm sure some of the some of our audience will be uh, will be reaching out or, or can reach out to us as well. But uh, but Jimmy, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us here this afternoon. It's it's always a pleasure, and and Duke is lucky to have you. It's a great organization, and I'm so excited for this uh, for this partnership to to continue for the next coming few coming years. Well, thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. And I would welcome any, anybody who wants to contact me, feel free to do so. Thank you so much for having me, though, here today. It's great to talk to you. Um, it's, it's the partnership with the FDIC is kind of a dream come true for, for me and for Duke, um, for our students. It's, it's just going to be fantastic. I'm so looking forward to, uh, to continuing down this road. Thanks again, Sultan. I really do appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jimmy.